0: Hello everyone and welcome to the March 18th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Skirin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel decision concluded that a compromise and release agreement only releases body parts specifically listed in paragraph 1 of that document. In this case, Maria Morales filed two claims against her employer. The first was a claim for injury to the left thumb, knees, back, headaches, internal body system, psyche, neck, and multiples. The second claim was for an injury to the internal system, neck, back, knees, upper extremities, psyche, and urinary system. The parties entered into a compromise and release in the amount of $118,000. Both of applicants' claims were described in paragraph 1, but... The internal system was not listed as a body part condition or system being settled. In paragraph 10 of the CNR, the parties drew a star and hand-wrote that the settlement resolves all liability and claims against the carrier and employer. About 26 days later, Morales notified the defendant that she did not believe that the compromise and release resolved the claimed injury to her internal system. The matter proceeded to trial on the issue of whether the compromise and release barred her claim of injury to her internal system. The work comp judge found that the agreement resolved her internal claim of injury and that the claims filed against AIG were fully resolved by the order approving compromise and release. But the WCAB granted reconsideration and reversed finding that applicants' claim of internal injury <clears throat> was not resolved as part of the compromise and release in the panel decision of Morales v. Universal Furniture and AIG. It ruled that the parties must clearly identify each injury and list the corresponding body parts in paragraph 1 of the CNR. That's because that section requires that the parties state with specificity the dates of injuries, and what parts of body, conditions, or systems are being settled. Further, paragraph 1 also states that body parts, conditions, and systems may not be incorporated by reference to medical reports. Paragraph 1 allows the parties to clearly identify the settlement of multiple injuries with corresponding body parts by requiring that the parties list the case number, the type of injury, the date of injury, and the settled body parts. Therefore, if parties wish to settle multiple injuries to the same body part, the parties must list that body part under the description of each injury. And the parties may not settle multiple injuries to one body part by listing the body part under the description of one injury but not the other. The board noted that in the 2002 case of Jefferson v. Department of Youth Authority, the California Supreme Court held that a general release in a workers' compensation case will bar other potential claims against the employer that exist at the time of execution of the release unless the employee knows about the claim and expressly accepts it from the release. However, the board pointed out that about six years after the Supreme Court decided that case, the Compromise and Release Agreement form was revised to prevent overbroad releases. This release does not bar applicants' claimed internal injury because it is limited to the settlement described in paragraph 1 and that paragraph did not settle the claimed internal injury. And another noteworthy WCB panel decision concluded that the de facto ownership of an organization by a criminal defendant triggers a labor code section 4615 stay. This occurred in the case of Ana Villanueva versus Tiva Foods and the Travelers Insurance Company. The issue of whether the lien of First Line Health Incorporated should be subject to an automatic stay pursuant to Labor Code Section 4615. The work comp judge found that criminally charged providers manure Ueda MD and Paul Turley controlled First Line Pursuant to Labor Code 139.21A3 despite their efforts to hide their ownership. And the Work Comp judge ordered that the lien of First Line in this case is subject to a stay pursuant to Section 4615. First Line filed a petition for reconsideration contending that David Johnson, MD, was the sole owner and officer of First Line and thus controlled First Line pursuant to the Labor Code, and that Director Johnson is not currently charged with any crime. And thus, <clears throat> there are no grounds to impose a Section 4615 stay against its lien in the case. The Werkheim judge filed a report recommending that First Line's petition for reconsideration be denied because the defendant's evidence indicates that Dr. Ueda exercised absolute control over First Line. Despite the fraudulent identification of other individuals as owners, officers, or directors of First First Line in official documents. This was done in order to hide Dr. Ueda's ownership and control of First Line from creditors, investigators, government agencies, and law enforcement. Mr. Turley stated that First Line was created to take over the fraudulent activities of Frontline and that Dr. Ueda exercised the same absolute control over first line as he had over the prior company, Frontline. Even though others, including Dr. Johnson, were identified as owners, officers, or directors, Ueda fled the United States to Lebanon in June of 2010. In the fall of 2010, Turley traveled to Lebanon to confer with Ueda and to discuss how to keep the frontline businesses operating without Ueda's presence and without his name being connected to the businesses. Ueda told Mr Turley that there was close to a billion dollars in receivables from frontline and first line. Dr. Ueda's control extends to the current criminal defense in this case. He has paid millions of dollars for the attorneys for the defendants, including defending Turley. The WCAB on reconsideration said it concurred with the conclusion of the work comp judge that the evidence, namely the factual statement of Paul Turley, appeared to establish prima facie grounds to impose a Section 4615 stay against First Line's lien based on Dr. Ueda's de facto ownership and control of First Line. The ruling is posted on the WCAB website as a significant panel decision. However, the Turley statement was produced on the eve of trial, and thus the lien claimant did not have sufficient notice or opportunity to rebut the statement of Mr. Turley. The lean claimant objected that the Turley statement <clears throat> was part of a plea arrangement in his criminal case wherein he pled guilty and got credit for time served in exchange for his execution of this statement. The petition for reconsideration was granted by But the WCAB rescinded the finding in order and returned the case to the trial level for further proceedings consistent with the decision to allow them to rebut Mr. Turley's statement. First line is thus afforded an opportunity to present their case. Bruce Fishman, M.D., was the AME in the Almarez-Guzman case and he is now facing multiple court battles of his own. Dr. Fishman was first licensed as a physician and surgeon in California back in 1983. He was the AME in the landmark Alamarez-Guzman decision in 2009. That decision paved the way for deviations from the strict interpretation of the AMA guides. However, in April 2018, the DIR issued him a notice of provider suspension from participating in the workers' compensation system. Dr. Fishman is pursuing his right to request a hearing on that action. He is also the defendant in a 2018 Key Tom action brought by the state of California, the counties of Los Angeles, Kern, San Bernardino, Ventura, Santa Barbara, and several cities and school districts. Among other things, they claim he violated the California Insurance Fraud Prevention Act, identified in Insurance Code 1871.7. He is also involved in litigation against his former Lean Collection and Medical Legal Management Company, which is now the subject and of an opinion this month by the California Court of Appeal. In the unpublished case of Med Legal Associates, Inc. v. Fishman, it says that Fishman entered into a relationship with Green Lean Collections back in 2008. This was a company owned by Patrick Nazemi, which provided billing, collection, and enforcement services to medical providers. Then in 2011, Nazemi formed Med Legal Associates, Inc., with the intent to provide management services to medical legal providers. The Management Services Agreement provides that they would assist fishermen in arranging for advertising and marketing services, and that Fishman was responsible for paying the actual cost and expense of all advertising services. The agreement also contained an arbitration provision. But Dr. Fishman became dissatisfied with Medical Legal Associate Services claiming that the medical transcribers, physician assistants, and medical researchers were inadequate and underqualified. Perhaps more toxic was the fact that the personal relationship between Dr. Fishman and Mr. Nazemi began to erode. Fishman testified that Mr. Nazemi attempted to extort him by threatening to expose his old felony conviction. Back in 1983, Dr. Fishman had been convicted of a federal felony related to the practice of medicine during his medical residency in Michigan and served a federal prison sentence. As a result, Dr. Fishman's medical license had been revoked in both California and Michigan. California ultimately restored his medical license in 1990, but Michigan never did. A consequence of the felony conviction was that Dr. Fishman could not complete his residency in orthopedic surgery and did not obtain board certification in the field of orthopedic surgery. Instead, Fishman is board certified by the American Board of Preventative Medicine, which is occupational medicine, and carries the initials FICS after his name, which stand for stands for fellow of the International College of Surgeons In 2015 Medlegal Associates filed a petition for arbitration against Dr Fishman for a breach of contract and fraud According to Medlegal Associates Dr Fishman's failure to disclose the felony conviction prior to entering into the management services agreement was fraud They claimed that had they known that Dr. Fishman was not a board-certified orthopedic surgeon, they would never have entered into the the management services agreement or introduced Dr. Fishman to its business contacts. Fishman filed a cross-claim for breach of contract and intentional infliction of emotional distress. According to the arbitrator, the parties were contentious throughout the arbitration process. At the end, the arbitrator found that Medlegal Associates failed to prove all requisite elements of its breach of contract and fraud claims, and that Medlegal Associates breached the Management Services Agreement by not providing Dr. Fishman with adequate staffing and promotional services. Thus, the arbitrator awarded Dr. Fishman $113,400, and as a prevailing party, Dr. Fishman was entitled to attorney fees and costs. He claimed over $1.2 million in attorney fees and 128000 in costs. Ultimately, the arbitrator awarded Fishman one-third of what was requested in attorney fees, or slightly more than $400,000. But the acrimonious litigation continued up to the Court of Appeal, which affirmed the arbitrator's award in the unpublished case of Medlegal Associates, Inc. v. Fishman. Following the appeal, Fishman was awarded additional attorney fees and the costs of his appeal. Covidin is a global healthcare products company and manufacturer of medical devices and supplies, and they were purchased by Medtronic in 2015. Coviden has now agreed to pay about $17.5 million to resolve allegations that it violated the False Claims Act. Under the settlement agreement, Coviden will pay about $1.5 million to the state of California and more than $1 million to the state of Florida. In that case, the United States alleged that Coviden violated the anti-kickback statute by providing practice development and market development support to healthcare providers located in California and Florida to induce those providers to purchase radiofrequency ablation catheters that were billed to Medicare and to the California and Florida Medicaid programs. The catheters are used in procedures that treat venous reflux disease, a disease often marked by the presence of varicose veins. The practice and market development support Coviden provided included customized marketing plans for specific vein practices, and scheduling and conducting lunch and learn meetings and dinners with other physicians to drive referrals to specific vein practices, as well as providing substantial assistance to specific vein practices in connection with planning, promoting, and conducting vein screening events to cultivate new patients. The Anti-Kickback Act prohibits the payment of remuneration to induce the referral or use of items or services paid for by federal health care programs. Remuneration includes not only cash payments, but also offers or payments made in kind. The settlement resolves allegations contained in lawsuits filed by former sales managers for Coviden and a former employee of one of Coviden's customers, which are pending in San Francisco. The lawsuits were filed under the whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act, which permit private individuals to sue and to share in any recovery. The whistleblowers in this case will receive more than $3 million as their share of the recovery. And the New Hampshire Supreme Court ruled in favor of an injured worker on his right to have cannabis for medical treatment of his injury. Andrew Panaggio suffered a work-related injury to his lower back back in 1991. A permanent impairment award was approved in 1996, and in 1997 he received a lump-sum settlement. Panaggio continued to suffer ongoing pain as a result of his injury and has experienced negative side effects from taking prescribed opiates. Thus, in 2016, the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services determined that he qualified as a patient in the therapeutic cannabis program and issued him a New Hampshire Cannabis Registry Identification Card. Pinaggio purchased medical marijuana and submitted his receipt to the workers' compensation insurance carrier for reimbursement. The carrier, CNA Insurance Company, denied payment on the ground that medical marijuana is not reasonable, necessary, or causally related to his injury. A hearing officer and the board agreed with the denial. It noted that the statutory language of the cannabis law states that "...nothing in this chapter shall be construed to require any health insurance provider, health care plan, or medical assistance program to be liable for any claim for reimbursement for the therapeutic use of cannabis," and concluded that the carrier is therefore not able to provide medical marijuana also because such reimbursement is not legal under state or federal law. The Supreme Court of New Hampshire disagreed and reversed in the case of the appeal of Andrew Panagio. It noted that statutes in other jurisdictions expressly prohibit workers' compensation insurance carriers from reimbursing claimants for the cost of medical marijuana. The Supreme Court then noted that Had the legislature intended to bar patients in the therapeutic cannabis program from receiving reimbursement, it easily could have said so. Thus, the Supreme Court would not add language that the legislature did not see fit to include in the statute. But the Board's order failed to sufficiently articulate the law that supports the Board's legal conclusion and fails to provide an adequate explanation of its reasoning regarding federal law. Thus, it was impossible for the Supreme Court to discern the basis for the board's decision, sufficient for it to conduct a meaningful review. The case was therefore remanded back to the board for a determination of the issue of the federal criminal issues in the first instance. And Uber announced that it settled a pair of lawsuits for $20 million dollars. It was the case of O'Connor versus Uber, and it was first brought by a group of Uber drivers back in 2013 who argued they should be categorized as employees rather than freelancers. By classifying drivers as contractors, Uber avoids paying benefits of traditional employment such as health care insurance, paid sick time, and workers' compensation. The case was almost settled back in 2016 when Uber agreed to pay as much as $100 million to roughly 385,000 drivers, so long as it could continue to classify them as freelancers. But the settlement was later rejected by a federal judge who argued that the amount was insufficient. Since then, the tilt has shifted in Uber's favor. The U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling bolstering the power of employers to force workers to use individual arbitration instead of class action lawsuits. Last year, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals reversed O'Connor versus Uber's class certification status, nullifying the decision on the ground that Uber's arbitration clause prohibits class actions. The appeals court ruling ultimately reduced the size of the class to about 13,600 drivers who will participate in this new settlement. Under the current agreement, drivers will receive $20 million, approximately 37 cents per mile for the miles they have driven for Uber. But the settlement still requires a judge's approval. And now our crime report. Two brothers owned a West Los Angeles pharmacy and were convicted of illegally selling prescription opioids and other narcotics to black market customers across the United States. 48 year old Barry Kabav and his 35 year old brother, Dalibor Dabo Kabav, both residents of Brentwood, were ordered to serve 120 months in federal prison. The Kabav brothers operated. Global Compounding Pharmacy that was located in West Los Angeles. Their brothers were convicted of illegally selling the opioid narcotics oxycodone, hydromorphone, and hydrocodone following a three-week jury trial in early 2017. These brothers rose from mail-order drug dealers, sending drug parcels to Ohio for cash, to owners of a Los Angeles pharmacy that sold millions of dollars of opioids on the black market. Authorities seized shipments containing thousands of oxycodone pills sent by the Kebab brothers to customers in and around Columbus, Ohio. These customers in turn made cash deposits into kebab controlled bank accounts or simply shipped bulk cash to the brothers in Southern California. After drug wholesalers cut off global compounding, the Khabavs began manufacturing their own opioid pills after buying a $20,000 pill press from China and acquiring enough bulk powder to make 100,000 maximum strength pills. The Khabav brothers earned more than $3 million from the wide-ranging conspiracy and they cheated the Internal Revenue Service by failing to report $1.5 million on their federal tax returns. And the married owner and manager of Los Gatos' urgent care clinic were arraigned on felony fraud charges after an investigation showed that they massively overbilled clients and in one case billed $700 for a pair of foam slippers worth less than $10 for a patient who stepped on a sea urchin. One audit of the business operated by 50-year-old Dr. Farazai Tabrizi, and 53-year-old Ali Moyad revealed a 100% error rate for billing. This included upcoding, which is falsely claiming a more serious injury or illness and billing for services not rendered and patients were billed for diagnostic testing they did not receive. One of the defrauded insurance companies estimated their loss from the fraudulent practice at more than $200,000. If convicted, they may face paying back tens of thousands of dollars in restitution and time in jail. A federal grand jury has indicted San Francisco acupuncturist Hai Chao Huang charging him with health care fraud and making false statements related to health care billing. Huang was a health care provider who offered acupuncture, physical therapy, massage, and other services at his office in San Francisco. The indictment alleges that Huang submitted claims for reimbursement to his patient's health insurance plans. He claimed that he provided reimbursable services and treatments when, in fact, he knew that the billings were false and not properly reimbursable. The indictment gives three examples. One, where he submitted requests for reimbursement for acupuncture and other treatments when, in fact, the patient had received either much shorter periods of treatment or no treatment at all. In another example, after a patient reached the limit of acupuncture sessions allowed by the relevant insurance plan, Huang billed the plan for other types of treatments and services that were not provided in order to continue receiving improper reimbursements. In a third example, Huang submitted claims for services rendered on days when the patient beneficiaries were not seen and received no services at all including days when Huang was not even in California. He pleaded not guilty and was released on bond. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. To use that, please search for workers' compensation news on the Amazon website. And again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Minuki, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.